Welcome to Spectrum, the show that discusses news and topics that affect Southern Nevada and the surrounding communities. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Welcome to the program. I've got two TV legends on the show this morning. Later, stand-up comedian and good time star Jimmy Walker is joining me. But first, one of the most genuinely nice people that I've had the pleasure to know, former Laverne and Shirley star Cindy Williams, who is getting ready to appear in a new show here at the Smith Center called Middletown. I've got Cindy Williams on the line right now from Los Angeles. I talked to you a while ago when you had first come out with your book, Surely I Jest, and we got into the whole cool conversation about you meeting Jim Morrison and and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I remember that. When you did meet him, did you ever think maybe there might be something there, or was it just too intimidating and crazy? Oh, no, honey. He had two very beautiful blonde girls at the table. (laughs) But that's not to say that I wasn't enamored with him and, you know, like... I mean, he was like a Greek god. When I met him, I was just a waitress at uh, Whiskey and Go-Go. I was just 21, and, you know, I was I was a waitress. So there yeah. was no, you know, and I was from the valley. There was no picking me up or me picking him, you know. <laughs> Wish. As far as we're concerned here in Las Vegas, you're practically a local. You spend a lot of time on our stages here. Uh, I think you did menopause. That's what I'm doing currently is menopause. And then I go into Middletown. But um, yeah, I I am a resident here now. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the uh, Smith Center and the setup over there? Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, Isn't my it? Gosh. It's just great. All the way around. I mean, it's such a lovely place to go to. Yeah, I think a few years ago, if people thought that we would have a Broadway stage for people to appear on, and I mean, there have been Broadway musicals and great concerts here for quite a few years now, and and the architecture is just beautiful there, too. That's what I mean. The ambiance is just world-class. This uh, show, Middletown, it sounds great, and the cast sounds great. Tell me about the show and uh, the other members of the cast. The other members of the cast are uh, Dee Dee Khan, Adrian Smed, and uh, Dan Most, who I've worked with, you know, from Happy Days. And, and yeah. Who I, who I adore. I adore them all. And um, it's about friendship and about four friends, two couples, who um, spend a lot of their lives together and it, you know ups and downs and like they say everything in between and uh it just it's fun and it's charming and it's it's got heart a lot of heart and it's very very relatable on on all those levels i know that you crossed paths with the happy days folks because you were a spinoff your show did you have any scenes with don most in those early days uh, when we first did Happy Days, because they, as you said, they spun us off from Happy Days. So we came in and did like five Happy Days. And then we did these crossover shows, which is where they come on to our show and we come on to their show. And part of the show would be the show would start half of it on their show. And then we, you know, take the rest of it into our um, uh, playing field so to speak, onto our show, and, oh, yeah, I know Donnie. I know John most from when he was Donnie most. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I think that's probably one of the first shows that did kind of the crossover type of thing, don't you think? I think so, yeah. ABC did a lot of those in in the year of the dinosaur in those days. 
and uh, they were, you know, popular and a lot of fun to do. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, working with Don again. They, we play husband and wife in this. He's one of the nicest, one of the nicest guys. I've interviewed him before and just had a great time. Yeah, he really is. Just a genuine, nice guy and uh, so talented. Same could be said of you, and I've never met or talked to Dee Dee Khan before, but she just seems like the sweetest person, too. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And you're right about that. He is just, you know, just a genuine, talented, fabulous person also. And um, and so much fun. I've never worked with Dee Dee, but um, we're acquainted. And, you know, through the years we've seen each other. And she's just a lovely, lovely person. I'm looking so forward to this. And Adrian, of course. Yeah. Fantastic. And he's just wonderful. Anyway, it's a play that everybody should see. They won't be disappointed. They'll be very entertained on every level and go away just feeling good about themselves and, you know, um, a little thought-provoking also about one's life. I mean, it's so relatable, this play. And um, I think everyone who comes is going to really really enjoy it. I've heard great things about it. You know, your life has been so interesting. I There were so many different roles that the ones that you got and, and uh, you know, when you look at American Graffiti, I believe you nearly turned down the role that you ended up doing because you wanted to play the Candy Clark role. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. When I read the script, I called the casting director and said, I, I love this. Yes, but I, I want to play uh, Debbie, the fast girl. And he said, it's already been cast. <laughs> so I looked again and I said, well, what about Carol? He said, that's a part for a 12-year-old. And I said, right. I can put braces on my teeth. And he said, we're actually casting a 12-year-old in that role. And that was Mackenzie. I just didn't want to play the part of the girl who cries all the way through the movie. You know, cries and complains all the way through the movie. But I was blessed to get a chance to play it in the end. And... um it worked out perfectly. I remember hearing something about how you and Harrison Ford, who had a small role in the film, finally got a look at one of the dailies and you thought, this is going to be something. Yeah, we um, George Lucas had uh, assembled about halfway through the movie, which would be two weeks into it, because it's yeah. a 28-day schedule. Um, George had assembled 20 minutes of what we'd done, and we thought we were just doing a you know, plain old car movie. And so we all, he invited the cast to come in and see it, and he put the music in, you know. Um, he had edited that in, and when we saw this 20-minute assemblage of the film, we knew we were in something incredible, and Harrison turned to me and said, this is flippin' great. And <laughs> he was right. He was absolutely, you know, and I knew it too the minute I saw it person who didn't know was Richard Drivers. He didn't come and see that assemblage. And uh, and then by the time the movie came out, he was working on The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, and he was in Canada. And we right. called him and said, oh my goodness, this is the greatest movie. There's lines around the block in Westwood. And he said, what? And we uh-huh. said, lines around the block. And he, he still, I saw him recently, and he was talking about that. He said, I just couldn't get it into my head that this was a, you know, a movie that was great. So anyway, we always tease him about that. But yeah. 
do you look at someone like Harrison Ford at that point? There, there could be no way that you could think to yourself, this guy's going to be a major star. I could see him as a major star, but, um, yeah. you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, look at Harrison. He's going to be a major star. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like that. Yeah. I found him before the movie. We were friends, and um, uh, he was just Harrison, you know, just Harry funny and always getting into some kind of mischief and, uh, you know, wonderful, funny person. Then he became Harrison Ford. But, um, you know, I remember um, when he was up for the part of Han Solo and George wasn't sure because on American Graffiti, he and Paul Lamatt, the wonderful Paul Lamatt, yeah. had gotten into a little bit of trouble, you know, just drinking beer and stuff like that and horsing around. And so uh, George had to think about casting him as Han Solo. And we all went in, not all of us, but some of the cast from American Graffiti went into George's office and said, oh, you've got you've to give Harrison this part. He's, you know, he was born for it. And George did, and the rest is show business history, Jim. Well, you know, and of course, Han Solo was a troublemaker, as it turns out, that character. So I guess right, it was... It was it was great casting. How did the role of your role in the conversation come to you? Francis Coppola, who was co-producer of American Graffiti, which was shot, or was the producer of American Graffiti, excuse me, which was shot right before the conversation or a year before. He screen tested actresses and I was one of them that he screen tested. And so I, I got it from the screen test. And you had scenes, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember with Frederick Forrest. That's correct. Yeah, he seemed like a pretty cool guy. I mean, I've, I've seen quite a few things that he's done over the years. Very cool guy. He's yeah. eternally cool. Like Did you, I know that you were you your scenes were separate from the other cast members, but did you spend any time with Gene Hackman? Oh yeah, we had rehearsals with um, the whole cast had rehearsals together because Francis likes to Francis Coppola when he directs he does this marvelous thing where he has sometimes has the actors change parts and you know and so we change parts one day and Gene played Frederick's role and Frederick. I don't know, another role, and we all just switch parts around. That's incredible. I, I had never heard that before. Yeah. It's not a theater game, but it's a, it's a great way to really connect with the whole piece. You know, with all the, with the story and everything and have sympathetic, everybody has like a sympathetical for each other and each other's characters. It was interesting casting anyway. I mean, I remember the actress, the blonde actress who played Luann on Gomer Pyle was in this film and she was great. Yes, she was wonderful. She played the escort. Did you have a sense, Cindy, at that point that maybe drama would be your future rather than comedy? No, that, um, I just wanted to act and you know of course I was very young and thought I could do it all and um but I of course had a, a hankering to do comedy that was why I wanted part of Debbie because it was more lighthearted and fun and I kept saying I've got to you know I mean because the first time I got cast was on room 222 I mean professionally right and I oh I and I did that show three times and I played this character who was always the lead's best friend Always was in the girls' bathroom talking about her breaking up with her boyfriend and giving her, you know, compassion and comfort and sympathy and and 
I kept wanting to do comedy. You know, I kept, I just don't want to be the league's best friend anymore. I want to play comedy. Yeah. And uh, boy, I got to. Yeah, you sure did. You know, it's it's interesting because a couple of days ago, there was a, uh, a rerun of the Mary Tyler Moore show on, and your late great friend Penny Marshall was a guest star. She played Ed Asner's date on this, and she was just so funny. Yes, yes. She's, there's a, a person who is born to it, you know. I mean, she's just born to it, and a natural-born comedian and a natural-born director. Was it her who talked you into doing Laverne and Shirley? We were working together and, and uh, on something else as writers, a writing team, and then her brother called, and uh, Gary. He was producing and writing Happy Days at the time and said, there's a part for two girls who date the fleet. Would you and Cindy be interested in coming over and, you know, taking a week off of the writing job and playing these two characters. And so that's how we, it started. And then you'd have to read my book because I explain it in there, uh, why I was reluctant to go over there and, and then do the, the actual show. And it had nothing to do with, you know, I wanted to be in movies or anything like that. Like people said, it was just a thing. I, I just lost my, you know, my uh, enthusiasm for it. And it was something that, you know, that happened between me and Penny and uh, when we were writing. And I just, you know, I just didn't want to do it. And then she she did, you know, support me doing it, wanted me to do it. But I just, I was going to move out of town and, and get a job as a waitress in Eugene, Oregon. That's what I wanted to do because but it's a whole series of events the reason why I, I didn't I didn't want to do it and then finally uh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse it was my manager and she just said you have to do this and so I thought okay four on because the network had bought four episodes and I thought that's it Penny and I both did we thought four on and then we're out of there because how could, good could this be and, and <laughs> with us in it you know, I mean, that's right. the fact that it became this incredibly huge show. Do you think part of the reason was that you, too, made sure that the joke was always on you? Yes. Where'd you hear that? Yes. The joke was always on us. We never it was always on us. Gary made sure of that. We made sure of that. The whole if you watch that show, the joke is always on the character that's on the show. We never made fun of anybody. And that was why the humor was heightened. Because you know, when you when you have a joke where you're making fun of somebody, the audience laughs out of nervousness. They don't <laughs> laugh out of, you know, Oh, that could be me. They laugh out of just nervousness and, and, and sometimes embarrassment, you know, and, and to be polite at the joke. If you ever, I mean, just see how you feel when people make a joke about it. It's really bullying when you do that. Penny and I just never even thought of that. It, the joke always had to be on us because it's funnier and we were representing everybody, you know, like that could happen to me. When there's a joke, and you see it, especially in physical terms, and you go, that could happen to me. That's why everybody laughs when somebody hits their head on the door, because you feel it through your body, and you, that could happen to me. And Penny and I just innately knew that. And and Gary always wrote, you know, we call it our, um, it was the moral co corner of the show, where we had to talk about what we had done wrong and then forgive ourselves and that was a lesson in the show it was brilliant 
that he wrote that in there. Everybody could watch this show and laugh at it, laugh with us. You know, we all laugh together. It was never, we're above the audience. We're, you know, going to, here, we're going to lay a joke out to you that perhaps you'll get. The audience, we just were the audience, you know. And if it didn't make us laugh in rehearsal, then we knew it wasn't going to make the audience laugh. And so we'd rework it. And if it made us laugh out loud, we knew it would translate to the, tel- you know, everybody at home watching it. But it had to make us laugh out loud. Sometimes we, you know, we achieved that goal and sometimes we didn't. But we tried, always. The whole cast did. And the writers. I would assume that Michael McKean and David Lander were very collaborative when it came to oh preparing God. all that. Yes, yeah. By the way, you did The Odd Couple with Joanne Worley. What was that like? Just as you'd imagine. <laughs> it was so much fun. A dear friend. Fabulous, just, you know, such a, just bigger than life, Joanne. And it was so much fun. And we did the roles opposite, where I played, I played Oscar and she played Felix. Anyway, it was the opposite of what you might think it would be. Well, we're all looking forward to seeing you coming to Las Vegas for Middletown at the Smith Center. The shows are March 31st through April 1st, which is appropriate. And you can call the Smith Center box office for more ticket info. Cindy, it's always so nice to talk to you. I, I do appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jim. And come and see the show. You, you'll love it. I will for sure. Thank you, Cindy. Good luck to you. Thanks, Jim. Vice versa. Bye-bye. My next guest was already a stand-up comedian legend when he got the part on Norman Lear's Chicago-based sitcom, Good Times. How he got there is almost as interesting as doing the show itself. Let's welcome Jimmy Walker to the program. How are you, buddy? How are you? I'm very good. I'm here in Las Vegas, and I know that you're here quite a bit. Are, are you living here by any chance? Yeah, I've been in Vegas since, oh God, probably 1978, like there. I guess it has been a while. Congratulations, by the way, on your comedy special with Michael Winslow called We Are Here. That's great. Yeah, we're still here. <laughs> we are still here. <laughs> we are still here, yeah. Yeah. When and where did you guys record this? We recorded it in L.A. At a, at a venue that's probably 30 to 40 years old called The Palace. And and uh, Brian Folk, uh, uh, Weiss, who, who does all the, all, all the specials and stuff, he wanted to go to a new place. And we record like 10 people at a time, you know, and, and we had a lot, of, a lot of people on the show with us. So everybody took a day. We had Louis Anderson and Paul Rodriguez and and uh, and, and uh, uh, Daryl Hammond and Rita Rutner, who, who I still I think lives in Vegas actually. Right. We were like the third or fourth uh, of the group to finally get our special out there, and we love it. It's it's fabulous, and and it's new for us because uh, we're a little older group and we're not used to the streaming thing. So this is a streaming deal, but. Uh, so right. we'll allow that to happen. It's going to be, yeah. going to be peachy. I remember seeing clips of you on the Jack Parr show. How old were you at that oh point? Oh, my God. Really? Probably on YouTube. I don't mean to date myself. That was actually my first my first show. And, and, and the way that was very strange, the way that came about is uh, I was at the Improv in New York, and my, my class of people which included a lot of people, included uh, Bette Mittler and David Brenner and Steve Landisberg from the Barney Miller Show. We were right. sitting around and talk after our sets. And, we, you know, we stay up to like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And I was the only guy not doing television at that time. There were a 
thousand TV shows in New York. We had uh, David Frost and Dick Cavett and Joe Franklin. Johnny Carson was still in New York. And I said, oh, gee, I'm the only one not on TV. And, and, I, and they said, well, you should be on TV. And they said, well, I'm not on. So they went to Jack Parr and asked uh, Tom O'Malley, who was a talent coordinator, how about Jimmy Walker? And Tom O'Malley said, oh, we don't like Jimmy Walker. He's terrible. So <laughs> they said, well, if, if Jimmy Walker's not on, we're not on. So Bet and, 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 and Brenner took a very strong stand that I should be on. And doggone it, I got on the, I got on the show and luckily, uh, you know, luckily I got a few laughs and from there we went on to whatever we claim that we do now, whatever that is. The thing that I always hear from comedians who were at the improv or the comedy store or whatever, and that is Johnny Carson's show, that was the ultimate goal, right? Without a doubt. That was, our, that was going to Mecca. That was it, man. That was the place yeah. to go. You know, being on that show is really important. How did you end up getting the part on Good Times? Because of the because of the Jack Parr show, I was able to get a, a job as what they call a, a warm up comedian. I got a job way or, or over fifty seventh, eleventh, or whatever it was, warming up for a show called Carlucci's Department, which is a great idea. Now it's about an unemployment office. And we had some great people on James Coco and Jose Perez and Candy Azar and a right. lot of other really good people. And the casting director for Norman Lear, Pat Kirkland, saw me do the warm-ups. And luckily, I was getting a few uh, a few chuckles. So she brought Norman Lear by to see me do the warm-ups. And they said, well, we're doing a show in, uh, in Los Angeles. It's the Esther Roll show. Would you like to be on the show? I thought they were fibbing to me. I had no idea. I think it was idea. I said, if the show goes, let me know and whatever. Because people, I don't have to tell you, you know, you've been in radio for a thousand years. Right. People are always fibbing to you. People say, yes, I'm going to do this. So you just go, yeah, well, if you get it, uh, let me know. And doggone it, it happened. And it just, I mean, I never auditioned or did anything like that. My audition was doing my act. And usually most of the stuff... You know, uh, and working on the strip here, you know, at the truck or whatever. But we got the show from that. That's how that happened. It happened literally from just doing the Jack Parr show, which led to a lot of other antennas. So uh, television at that time was a major, major force. Jimmy, I've heard the story about how you finally go to the first table read. The whole cast is sitting there. You really know this. You've been doing the whole deal. I, you know, I went to the first table read. And uh, they're reading the script. And being a comic, you're very, very direct, okay? Very direct. Right. They're reading the script, and, and, and I go to the guy sitting next to me, and I go, man, this stinks. This is terrible. <laughs> I wrote this, this garbage. And the guy looks at me like I'm insane. So I get up and I walk away, and Alex, Alex Manning comes up to me and says, uh, the guy you were sitting next to was Norman Lear. And I didn't know who Norman Lear was. <laughs> and Norman Lear obviously had been part of the writing team and they they came down on me I don't have to tell you like a ton of bricks yeah you cannot talk to people that way because when you're a comic you I mean you just anything goes I mean you, you know in town here we have Andrew Dice Clay and we used to have Sam Kennison so people talk like that but then boy oh boy I learned my lesson very well 
because I had to put on asbestos underwear because they burnt out <laughs> in my old underwear. The other thing I heard you got blasted for by Lear is when you suggested that your very attractive co-star Bernadette Stannis do a pinup poster similar to what Farrah Fawcett did. And how did that go for you? You know what happened? I was doing a guest appearance on the fall guy. Okay. This shows you how long this goes by. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they have those, they have those pallets, you know, that they line up in the, and they lift stuff on those, those cranes and stuff. And I said to the guy, what are those pallets? What's all those boxes and stuff? They said, those are Farrah Fawcett's pinup uh, posters. And if you remember, she had a, a tremendous poster that everybody went crazy about. Right, Everywhere right. I go, people go, Bernadette Stannis, who plays Thelma, they said, Thelma is so gorgeous. God, we love to have pictures of her. We love to have this of her. We just love her. So I said, my heck darn it, old fiddly beat. <laughs> In a one-piece bathing suit like Farrah Fawcett, we could sell me. And I was thinking of, you know, because there's no black pinup people, right? There's yeah. none of that. And here comes Norman Lear. And he says, hey, did you just suggest that Bernadette, our girl, you know, would virtue and everything? <laughs> I said, yeah, Norman, it'd be great. We have a ton of photographers here, and we can put Bernadette in a bathing suit. He says, just because you are illicit, don't right. try to make our girl Bernadette part of your disease culture. <laughs> I was not even being ugly or anything. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a great idea to make money. I mean, I mean, you know, you look, the Kardashians last, she only made a quick $70 million. And I seem to remember that she ended up posing a lot of times in bathing suits after that. Not really. No, no, she won't do it. Every time we do we do a ton of autograph shows around the country, right? And I say, what is that? Why not? Because people come up to the table, you know, when you sign the autograph. Oh, God, you're beautiful. When I was a kid, I used to dream, you know, you're the best and this and that. And she still really won't do it. And I go, oh, man. You know, <laughs> he has one little, he did one little dance video. And I said, you should make that like a little 10-minute 10, 10 video and sell the video. I'm mercenary. I live in Vegas. How can we monetize this thing, man? <laughs> you just won't do it. I wanted to ask you one more question. This is kind of a rumor that I had heard, that when they were casting the show, the uh, the guy who played your younger brother, Ralph Carter, wasn't exactly available contractually. He was doing a play called The Raisin. Could, they couldn't get Ralph, so they brought in a stand-in to work for Ralph. Larry Fishburne. Unbelievable. The guy who did the part. Right. That shows you how the work was in those days. And Larry Fishburne, they told him, they said, uh, we're waiting for Ralph, but, you know, we're going to use you up until when we can get Ralph. So I'm not kidding. It was like a day before. So he figured, well, they can't get Ralph. I got the part. Yeah. And literally six hours before the show was to shoot, they got Ralph. And Larry was, Lawrence was so hurt because he thought, you know, but he, he a week before he would have said, all right, you know, they got Ralph. But here we are, six hours before the show is to shoot, and they bring in Ralph. But you know the strange thing about it? The careers have been so different. Every time I see Lawrence, I said, man, imagine if you, if you had been cast in our show instead of doing the career that you've had. Lawrence right. had an incredible career. An oh, incredible exactly. career. 
You know stuff. I like that. Always liked you. I wish I could talk longer with you. Your new comedy special with Michael Winslow is called We Are Still Here, and it's out there, as you say, on Amazon and Comcast, DirecTV, all the streaming areas. It was great talking to you, Jimmy. Hey, beautiful, man. See ya. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take care. Good luck to you. Thanks again to Jimmy Walker and my earlier guest, Cindy Williams, who is appearing at the Smith Center in Middletown at the end of the month. I might suggest that you pick up Cindy's great memoir, Surely I Jest. Thanks to all of you for listening this morning. I do hope to see you back here next Sunday at 7.30. Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com.